Welcome to On Call, a podcast all about the world of spiritual care. Each episode will host insightful conversations from practitioners in the field of providing spiritual care. I'm your host, Matthew Coulomb. In today's episode, I have the honor of interviewing Dane's Curian, spiritual health practitioner at Alberta Hospital Edmonton. Alberta Hospital Edmonton is a 300-bed psychiatric care facility that provides assessment, diagnosis, treatment, education, and research. Daints has been providing care for patients for almost 16 years at this hospital. You are in for some firehose moments in this interview as Daints shares from his years of experience. Let's jump right in. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. We're really excited to welcome today uh, Daints, who works at Alberta Hospital Edmonton. And uh, I'm really excited to explore a little bit more with him today about spiritual care and mental health. Um, prior to turning on the record button here, we were just sharing a little bit. And uh, as a, as a uh, CPE student currently, I've done a little bit with mental health, but however, this is an area that I want to grow in. And I'm so, I'm so excited to have him share with us today. So welcome, Daints. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. So my first question is, and I did a little bit of research so I could sound, you know, a little bit smart, but <laughs> uh, the, the first question is uh, talking a little bit of how the Mental Health Commission of Canada reports that each year, one in five Canadians experience a mental health problem or illness. And one of the major issues regarding this alarming stat is the ongoing stigmatization surrounding mental health. So I would wonder if you'd share with us today, how do you provide spiritual care to those dealing with mental illness and how do you combat the stigma that, you know, maybe within them, but also within maybe their support system? Okay, I'll start with the second part first, which is uh, how to combat stigma. Uh, often stigma is a very difficult place to deal with. For example, uh, stigma centers and focuses around assumptions. So for example, if I were to be a person who has diabetes, hypertension, heart problems, somehow I feel that in the long, in the spectrum of my life, most of the time I'll be treated quite kindly and gently because of the illness that I have. But that's not so true when it comes to mental health issues. With mental health, you never see that kind of grace offered. Um, I've, I've seen that um, even mentally People who struggle with mental health issues would tell themselves, I become crazy once in a while, and they'll tell you that. Uh, and they know when they're not well and when they're well. They know the difference. But the, the common understanding from most people, general understanding of the population is that uh, they cannot be trusted, they're not reliable, they're unpredictable. What do you do with these people? They can be dangerous, uh, they're weird. They're not normal. They speak kind of awkward or whatever. But the funny thing is, even people who have this heart problems and die, they can be bad people. Mm -hmm. But they're not considered bad people or their illness is not attached to that. Right. And, and so, therefore, the stigma. The stigma stays with them for a, almost for the rest of their lives. And... Um, and it's rampant. It's, uh, I think it takes a long time to overcome that. And it'll take, it will continue. It's an ongoing thing. I say that stigma and mental health is an ongoing battle, especially for those who battle with the illness. 
uh, because it is persistent, it's enduring, it's long-term, it doesn't go away, and there's a lot of losses that are attached to it. Uh, losses in terms of lost potential, lost capacities, lost relationships, lost finances, lost in productivity and how they are. So the value system is kind of gone from them. And so um, their losses also kind of get attached to their risky behaviors and uh, especially addiction. Uh, mental health and addiction go hand in hand. Right. Uh, and so that that's a big piece. And so um, oftentimes people don't realize that um, even young people growing up in there, probably when they get early onset of illness, uh, they feel awkward or not, um, not well. So they start on some street drugs just to make themselves feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. So, and they don't understand that it could be an illness. So they, in essence, they're self-medicating. And, and then it comes to a point that the addiction takes over and then the illness blows over and they have both. Right. Call it a comorbid situation. They have both an addiction and a mental health to deal with at that point. And so when they get hospitalized, most of the time they come to the hospital, uh, most people have both. They very rarely do you find someone who's just purely ill without addiction as a problem. Hmm. So that's the, um, uh, the stigma part. I think also stigma... Uh, there's a distinction between behaviors that are bad and behaviors that are connected to illness. Mm -hmm. So, and, and to separate those two, that's where, that's the challenge for those who are in the presence of those who are ill. Uh, there must be some place to provide a sense of awareness, education, exposure to the, to inform people about the nature of the illness and, um, and, you know, and be a support to those who are ill and not be against them mm -hmm. to help them as opposed to stand against them, which as it is, they feel very isolated and taken advantage of to begin with because mm -hmm. of the illness. And then the whole world is standing against them. They don't feel supported at all. And so to, to understand the illness, I think there should be a level of education to let people. Uh, what I do here to, to kind of dispel that is uh, I do a lot of presentation in different settings. I do it for nursing students. I do it for nurses, part of the nursing education. I do grand rounds with uh, multidisciplines. I also, in the church community, I do pieces of the this education, even in the church settings, among young adults, among the pastors, uh, with other leaders in the community, I help them understand what mental health looks like so that people don't get demonized. Mm -hmm. So now coming back to your question, it's a long question. <laughs> the part two of the question, part two of the question you asked is, how do you provide care? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the biggest piece that you need to focus on is the value and the respect of the individual hmm. that they understand that they're human beings first and they're treated that way first in spite of the behaviors so first to assess to identify and then to intervene so you need to first assess what's happening is it an illness that is showing up or is it just a behavior that's showing up Right. If it's a behavior, we all know what to do with it. But if it's an illness and you treat it like a behavior, sometimes it can go a wrong way. Right. So that, that's one big piece. And then to, to address this in a very caring way. Uh, and, and oftentimes people see the behavior and just go straight to uh, rules 
and a person who's always had the rule book thrown at them most of their adult life, it can be very intimidating and it can be very hard on them to accept that. So to be calm, to be supportive, to manage our own, our responses when we're dealing with them by speaking clearly, uh, not giving mixed messages, speaking lovingly, speaking firmly. Uh, and like I always say, patients always say that, treat me with respect, please. Hmm. And then I know how to behave because 90% of the time they're treated with force, aggression. Uh, in, in the community, the cops and everything that comes against them always come with a level of aggression. They're never treated nicely, especially when they are unwell. Right. So help to build. That's another piece that I do when I'm with patients, uh, how, um, how to support them is to build what I call building their internal resources because everyone has a right to autonomy. But the biggest thing about mental health is that, you know, there's a statement, competent adults making informed decisions is what the whole system is about. Yet in mental health, you're deemed incompetent when you come to the hospital. Right. Your rights, your freedoms, your thoughts means nothing. Hmm. And the choices you make are all wrong according to the system. And so, that's the challenge. So, so to help people understand the capacity to make good choices as opposed to making bad choices. Like even yesterday, I was with a patient yesterday and she was, uh, think about it. She was told that she was going to be discharged yesterday. So she was standing at the door with all her bags and everything all ready to go. Okay. And then they got a phone call. The unit got a phone call saying that the parents, the place that she's supposed to go, does not want to receive her. So she doesn't have a place to go to. So they just went up to her and said, no, you can't go today. Oh, she flipped. She got so angry. She was screaming. She was yelling. And she was so upset, swearing. And uh, you, you could, but that was behavior. It was not her illness. Right. You know, yeah. you, 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 you're sending me mixed messages. You told me I could go home and I've been locked up for the last two weeks. Now mm -hmm. you tell me I can go home and you say, no, you can't. And now when she got upset, they're saying, well, who knows how long you're going to stay here some more. Mm -hmm. All her privileges got pulled. So when I sat down and was talking to her, I could see that she was really lost. She was getting so mad at the system and yet... She could, she, she, so I told her, look, there are certain times when you're misunderstood. What do you do? Uh, you only have God who can defend you in this situation. Immediately, I could see how she calmed down. Just listening to that, knowing that, yeah, if I get upset at them, they're only going to throw the book at me some more. Right. They will lock me up longer. So for her to hold it in and be calm so that she can be treated um, otherwise, it, it took her some strength, inner strength. So building that inner resiliency, building inner resources. Mm. So then one of the things that we do is we provide presence by support emotionally, mentally, whatever we can to offer them support. Uh, and then provide them with clarity because oftentimes they're very suspicious of the system. Patients who come in and locked up are very suspicious of the system. And I always tell them, look, if you don't tell them what's happening, they're going to work on an assumption that something is wrong with you. Right. So you have to be open with them enough so that they can treat you accordingly. Hmm. 
So that's one of the pieces as well. So building all those resources is a, is a huge piece of the care that we offer them. So I'll just add one more thing to that uh, in, in the offering of uh, care. Uh, I think one of the key things is identifying uh, the, the issue, the problem at hand, because oftentimes there normally more than one problem that a person is going through, uh, relationship issues, finance issues, uh, sometimes it's homelessness issues, not dealing with the law, sometimes it's another illness, sometimes it's an addiction. So there are various problems and then you want to address and prioritize what's the most important and what's uh, the person finding as important as opposed to what you think is important. Hmm. Oftentimes when a person comes in, the, the, the system wants to look at uh, finding what the problem is. So diagnose. So the medical model is based on diagnose uh, and treatment, diagnosis and assessment, diagnosis and treatment. But the patient always feels left out. Hmm. Where am I in all of this? You know, they, people are only, they say professionals are only interested in their problems. Right. And you're not interested in who they are. And so, and so identifying not just the problem and also knowing who the person is behind all those issues is one. And then dealing one truckload at a time. That's what I say. Mm, that's a good way to put <laughs> it. <laughs> you know, you don't want to go with everything because you'll get nowhere. And then the other one is making intentional decisions, not reactive decisions. Mm. So if you're going to go after something, you make it very intentional and go after one piece at a time. And then uh, you have to track with wisdom and awareness. Hmm. Uh, there's a level of uh, wisdom and awareness that always need to follow, not just what the book says or what the, or what the system says. Right. Uh, yeah. Wow. So that's where you address the person. You have given me so much to think about. I just, I'm going to have to go back and, and go through that. But one thing that I thought was, uh, I just think is so important is, not to just read a diagnosis and then see that person just, they're not just, you know, yeah. whether it's bipolar or BPD or depression, yeah. anxiety, like you said, exactly. that, it, that that's still a person in the same way Absolutely. that we wouldn't think that somebody, you know, I'm currently helping on a stroke unit yes. and, you know, the person's not a stroke. The person yes. is affected yeah. by a stroke, but they're, yes. you know, they've lived their whole mm -hmm. life and there's so yes. much resources and who are mm -hmm. they? And, yeah. So I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting in mental health, we do often still go by that. People yeah. will read that and mm -hmm. make that the lens by which they interpret everything that person does. But yeah. so often that person is complex like everybody else, right? There's yes. Yes. so much going on. So normally with chaplain students, I always say all the other disciplines can go into the chart read up about the person and then go and see the person. But in a chaplain situation, I always say, do it the other way around. Go and meet the person first, then go back into the charts and see what they have told you and what they have not told you. Right. Yeah. That yeah. way you get a better understanding of who they are and what's happening in their lives. Wow. Yeah. 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 Get to know them first before you go into that chart. So that, that that's a very interesting way. And I found that it really has helped me not to make prior judgments on people. Right. So when, otherwise you read the chart and say, this person murdered three people and you go, oh my God, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then it's with that kind of uh, attitude or with that mindset that you go and sit in front of that person. It's not helping you at all. Right. Yeah. And it's true. It, it's even true of other uh, areas of, of spiritual care as well, because I've noticed, mm -hmm. you know, I, 
you know, you become aware of somebody's situation and, and often, you know, and I, it's nothing against any other discipline, but I think we go in with a different set of ears than, than even psychology. I think psychology is going in with a specific goal in mind, but we were kind of maybe a bit more broad. And so I think that, yeah, it's good to realize that we, we have a a purpose and that, that can be very good as, in, to help mm-hmm. these patients, right? So absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, for the sake of time, I'll keep going. But I would love okay. to to camp on that more. I <laughs> I just I felt like my my brain was kind of expanding too fast there. But it was it's such good content. I really appreciate yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um, my next question is one that I've asked almost every one of my guests because I think um, it, to me it's just it can go almost anywhere. But for those who enter the world of spiritual care or who are taking CPE. What would you say are your top three nuggets in regards to providing spiritual care to those with mental illness? Okay, I'll make it short, okay? okay? The first one is I always say your heart must be in the right place. You must always believe in the success of others because most people in mental health have a level of losses. So they're going through multiple griefs, multiple losses. So that we're dealing with hope and despair a lot. And we cannot buy into that. I cannot buy into that as a chaplain, especially as a mental health chaplain. So I must believe in the success of others. And I, I always have to remind people, because whenever you ask somebody, do you think you'll leave this hospital? And they'll always say, I hope so. And it's almost like, I don't think I'll ever. Mm-hmm. And that's their response. 90% of the time, that's where they come from. But I always have to point them and I'll say, you know, you look outside, it's winter, all the trees are almost dead, no grass out there, it's all snow. Just give it two months, man. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it'll change. So as surely as the seasons change, life has a way of changing its seasons. Where You were once 20 years old and now you're not 20 anymore. So things can change and things can change for the better. So you always have to be hopeful. So there always have to be a level of, um, uh, so, so we have to be equipped to believe in success. So when people come up with that question as to um, what are you saying? What, what, what life do I have out there? I think we have to have a level of preparedness knowing that success is always there. It's a, it's a mindset. It's an attitude uh, that uh, with faith, all things are possible. Um, you know, you, you, you don't give up until everything is done. You're still here, which means you still have life. So that that aspect. So that's one. The second one is to have a deep level of care. You have to love people. You have to learn how to love people who are in suffering and who have a lot of pain. Hmm. It's not easy, especially with mental health. It's not easy to love people who are really down and out. Hmm. Uh, So one of the things that I always say is, if you go into a unit and ask any of the patients, who do you think really cares for you? They will tell you. Hmm. Patients will tell you who cares for them and which staff is good and who isn't who's there to do the job and who's there to really care for them. They will tell you. So I always say, be genuine, be intentional, and you cannot bring your own baggage and stuff into this, into their situation. Right. It's very easy if you're going through uh, your own struggles and then you see them. Uh, it can be really hard hmm. as to how you behave with them and how you treat them. Yeah, that's, it's such a good, I mean, that's kind of a CPE mandate, isn't it? Know yourself, yeah. right? Because yes, 
it's, you know, a, an intervention with a patient could bring up your own, your own stuff too, yeah. right? For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you got to be very careful with how you deal with that, with uh, how you use your resources around you and support systems for your own, your own sanity, because you won't be effective. You won't be helpful. Right. Yeah. I really appreciate how you, you know, it's the sense of leaning into really caring about that person and caring doesn't mean that we're negating their diagnosis, but it means that we're entering deeper into Mm -hmm. saying, okay, you're a person. And it's, it really makes me remind me of some, so in this unit, I've been doing some reading on narrative therapy and, and just how in narrative therapy, we're letting the person tell their story and then finding sources of hope within their story that sometimes, like you said, they, they might've minimized and and giving them agency again, right? Again, we may not be able to give them full agency, but let them make choices because they are people with capabilities, right? And so I think you're right in how you're you're trying to give them that respect again, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the story hasn't ended. They can still rewrite and change their story. Right. Yeah. So, so giving them that hope that no, you're not done with your story. You're still here. Mm -hmm. And, and so you have the potential and the capacities to change your story. Right. Yeah. Which again comes to some, I've been reading a positivity psychology and they've actually talked about how if people can focus on some, it's not just being positive, but it's actually (laughs) just living in those micro moments of positivity that can kind of actually give people strength to mm-hmm. move forward mm-hmm. and make better choices, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Good, good stuff. Thank you so much. Mm. Um, this next question is very self-serving. <laughs> so the I, I will pose it this way. The intersection between <laughs> mental health and, and spiritual care is, is big. If, if we had, a, you know, two circles overlapping, I think that those are, are, they're both big circles, but they overlap in a big way as well. So where would you th- kind of recommend, um, you know, a, a student go to, to maybe learn more about those two realms and how they overlap, spiritual care and uh, mental health? Uh, to some extent, I think it's a hands-on thing. You learn on the job. Sometimes when you step in, um, uh, in the process, you learn a lot. I must say that when I stepped into mental health, when I came to this hospital, uh, I did my PCE in Royal Alec in the mental health units. And I thought I I, I pretty much had it. I thought I was pretty good. I knew that I could, I knew the DSM. So I knew what diagnosis were, what illnesses were. So I thought clinically I was pretty sound, but the moment I came here, that's a totally different story Mm -hmm. because the patients teach you something totally different. They are the ones who are right on the ground. They Mm -hmm. teach you things that you never understand and never know. So that's one of the biggest piece. I see that um, to see the person, to find the person behind their symptoms and their Mm -hmm. behaviors that's the challenge. That's where you, when, when we focus and that can change us. Mm-hmm. When you see the person behind, then that can change you because some, some of the people that I've met have been people of deep faith. Right. But struggling with some of the most horrendous illness that you can possibly think of. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So um, from my perspective, I always say you have to have a teachable spirit. That means you always have to have a posture of finding learning opportunities from every situation. Every patient there has something to teach you and you have to learn from that. And, and the priority for the medical model, like I said, is the pathology, the symptoms, diagnose, illness. That's what the medical model is kind of based on. But then they leave the person out. Hmm. And the spiritual needs of that person, normally uh, we have something in this hospital, especially with mental health. We, we, that term is called delusions with religious content. People talk mm. about God, that I am Jesus sometimes in their delusions. They think that they are archangel or they are the devil incarnate and I'm Lucifer. Mm. So, uh, and, and when you hear the content, uh, when you focus on the content, you mistreat or you misdiagnose the person because you don't know if the person is going through a religious or a spiritual crisis, or are they truly going through a, a mental health crisis? Right. And, and that can be a huge problem. And I've, uh, I've got some literature that has helped me through that. And so I use that as a literature to show and sometimes even educate the team in terms of what uh, I'll give you one. Uh, I can make one quote. I have it written down. It's by Clark and Harrison. There's an article written by Clark and Harrison. And then there, there's some literature I can later pass on to you as well. But in this quotation, it says, DSM does not offer specific guidelines for assessing non-delusional religious beliefs. There is a, uh, there, there is a risk of pathologizing religious beliefs when listening to content alone. Instead, focus on the conviction, the pervasiveness, uniqueness or bizarreness and associated with emotional distress of the delusion to the patient. In the context of the patient's spiritual history, deviations from the conventional religious beliefs and practices are important factors in determining whether a religious belief is authentic or delusional right and oftentimes people get caught up in everything being delusional mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and they forget what the authentic faith crisis looks like when a person loses their interest in god or when or they're over uh, thinking that god you know will abandon me or banish me or you know i've done the, i've committed the unpardonable sin and those kind of things right can immediately be seen as a as a symptom mm-hmm Mm -hmm. Yeah, I so I appreciate that because again, as you said, the medical model is looking. And again, we're not we're not saying we're anti, uh, you know, interventions that the medical team can do. But it's that sometimes we're so quick to find some category within the DSM that we can allocate to this person so that yes. we can treat them, but yeah. forgetting that I don't think you know. And there's even some who have said you know, different thoughts. I know narrative therapy is one where they are not maybe as enamored with the DSM because it, it, it does limit your ability to see a person as a person. It sees right. you can have seen more just that person's diagnosis. And so yeah. I, I yeah. appreciate that because it, and yeah. especially within religious practice. And yeah. I know even within, you know, my own tradition and uh, as a, in a Christian background, there's different uh, levels of, no, I should say levels, different expressions of encountering God and, yeah. You know, Absolutely. for some might say, well, your expression, that sounds kind of crazy to me, right? And so yeah. people can, yeah. so people can say that and then mm -hmm. forget that, well, for them, that may not be delusion, that just may be their faith. Their faith, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and 
and to kind of decipher that and to uh, treat them accordingly right. and, 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 and respect them for what they believe and what they don't. And, and then separating that from the actual illness, mm-hmm. from psychosis or delusions. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's, that's, a, that's an assessment piece that I could see takes, as you said, it takes time to really hone your skills to be able to see yes. the, the difference between the two of those. Right. Yeah. Correct. Absolutely. Um, and I appreciate you, <laughs> you supported the whole, uh, you know, uh, CPE motto is that mm-hmm. experiential learning is probably one yes. of the best ways to learn. And I, and so I agree mm-hmm. with that. And, and I think mm-hmm. that that is, you know, where you learn. So that leads into my next question, which I think is always, it's probably my most favorite question that I've been asking people uh, during this podcast series is tell me about a patient that touched your heart or a patient that changed your practice? And of course, those could be connected as well. Okay, can I give you two? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, I'll run through a quick one, which I got just last year. This was a patient who came on a suicide watch because the cops had shot his wife. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was uh, on suicide watch for close to a month. He was in a straight jacket. He was uh, on constant. And uh, he was always in the place of, I want to kill myself. I just want to kill myself. And uh, so they were constantly watching him on that. And that's when I got to see him. Um, uh, and and uh, I didn't get to see him for the first month when he was on the watch because he was isolated in his own room. But when he came out of the room, that's when I got to see him. And then uh, a week before uh, I I worked with him probably a month at the most. I must have worked with him for one month. Just before he left, he he wrote a letter to me and I'll read that letter out. So that's what Mm. one of my clients, I hope you hear what I have to say. I talk, I took your book and I threw it away. You can condemn me to hell. I do not care. The devil is right. You are never there and never fair. You ripped us apart by giving free will to the police who shot and killed my dear Sarah. That was his wife. Your book is filled with self-righteous lies. Every day you let innocent people die. But in this heated poem, I was writing against you. I felt a beautiful shining light pass through. Pastor Danes rested his hand on me just then. I knew it was a sign that you would be You would love me to the end. The energy from Chaplain Danes filled my soul and the coldness I felt disappeared with his glow. Look at the glow. (laughs) (laughs) When he touched my hand and asked me, asked us to pray, my head was reeling. My head started spinning. But hearing Pastor Danes speaking, I knew it was a new beginning. In his prayer, I could feel the Lord and Susan beside us, beside me right there. He talked to me, this man of faith, and told me the choices I must make. He shared, he he showed me what is really at stake, my eternal life with you and Sarah, my Lord. And this to lose, I cannot afford. God bless you, Pastor Danes, as you have given me strength to fight back. Wow. That was a letter. That really touched me because initially I thought, what am I doing with this guy? In my own heart, I was thinking, am I really helping him? Because he was so depressed at that point. But he was discharged. He was um, a month later, you know, things started changing in his life for him. But um, one person that really touched me was my first day here in Alberta Hospital, 2005, when I first came. 
there's this 50 year old man he's he he passed away now he's, um I, I won't give his name but even even though he's passed away but uh he was a street person uh and uh, when i was first introduced to him i never expected that level of animosity and hatred that could come from one person because he just he he just stepped into me he you know stuck his middle finger right into my face just so close to my face and he was yelling and screaming i could feel his breath on my face when he said f you and die 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 and all that stuff mm. and um i was quite traumatized i must say you know emotionally and um uh, i thought i was going to be hit that's what i thought and that was my first day at work and <laughs> i know it i think that was going through my mind did i sign up for the right job <laughs> what, what am i in for right so i had this uh, thing that in my mind i had these two messages that were coming one i could avoid this guy because there are another 300 people in this hospital that i can help and work with i don't have to i can avoid him i don't need to work with him but deep down i also knew well he was also my patient i cannot avoid him as long as he is part on my list he's in my unit i cannot let him go mm -hmm. so with that in mind i very intentionally every time i saw him from a distance i would just say hi you know hi mr s i would say something like that and and he would just hurl abuses at me <laughs> every time i walked by oh and he would just he would do that and it happened for over a month over a month it happened and then i remember one day i stepped into his unit and he literally got up here he said hey chaplain come here so he knew who i was so mm -hmm. he said hey chaplain come here so i was as i was walking towards him carefully just maintaining my distance he got up and i thought okay here it comes he's going to do something now <laughs> and sure enough he took a step and he stumbled and he fell oh. he fell so as he fell i went out there to help him to get up so as i was reaching out my hand to help him other staff before who who jumped in to the place and helped him get up and put him on a seat chair and I told him are you okay and he said I'm fine get out of here and so I left the next morning I came into the same unit again he called me and so I thought okay here we go again <laughs> another right. one of those thing coming he looked at me from this distance he didn't get up he, he just pointed me to a chair and say can you sit down and talk to me I said of course I can I'm the chaplain for this unit so I sat down a little away from him and then he looked at me and said, Chaplain, I think you can help me. Hmm. I knew something happened. And he said, you were one persistent SOB. <laughs> <laughs> oh I will God. never forget that. <laughs> but the beautiful thing is I was able to kind of talk to him. And like you talked about the narrative came mm. to know his story and appreciate the man behind his illness. Mm -hmm. You know, he, uh, 10 years ago, he had, at that time, 10 years before, prior to his admission to the hospital, he started getting early dementia, mm. early onset of dementia. Right. He lost his wife. He got, uh, he lost all his valuables. He had a good job. He lost everything. He ended up in the streets and then he became a homeless person for about two years. He was in the streets, lost everything. And so he was such a bitter man. He was so bitter. He was angry at God. He was angry. He actually, I came to know, had a degree in philosophy from U of A. Wow. He knew theology. He knew philosophy. He, he, 
he knew so many things. He mm-hmm. was a he was an educated man, but mm-hmm. lost a lot in the journey of life, and therefore angry at the world. And he had no family, no friends, nothing. He cut everybody off, and so he was alone in this world. But then the beauty is within. Um, six months to a year, I was able to see him do well, mm. um, you know, respond to his medication. He got to it. He got into a group home and then he passed away there mm. and lived a very good life. At least his ending was beautiful. So yeah. um, never give up, never give up is one of the lessons I learned. And I, what I love about both of those stories is that, you know, even as a spiritual health practitioner, we can have this sense of like, okay, that person doesn't want me. They don't want me here. Um, But how often in our own lives and in our own relationships, do we have times where we push people away? I mean, that's, that's so normal. Right. And yet sometimes we forget that in caring about other people and, and hopefully within the medical model as well, is that we don't just say, okay, they don't want it. They've, they've not provided consent and now we're done um you know yeah. thinking more deeply that there's like you said there's a there's a hurting person like your first story just so yeah. impactful like a man who yeah. you know it, for the normal person if we lost somebody in our life that yeah. throws us into a normal tailspin i mean we just feel yeah. completely uh, yeah. abandoned right and yeah. so yeah yeah that the idea of persistence and and you know no matter what your faith tradition i think love is persistent right yeah. it is yeah. going to yeah. continue to con- to show that that care right absolutely yeah. absolutely and the first story the man his uh, wife was shot right in front of his eyes oh boy the cop yeah. his wife had mental health issues and so they stormed the house and she came charging out of the house and they shot her dead right in front of him so oh. that's what just threw him off so he lost faith in the system he lost faith in everything right yeah. yeah, and for him to write that letter, I thought that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And to, I think, to express that on yes. paper, paper was yeah. really, you know, there's something about bringing that just from your own thoughts, reflections mm-hmm. onto something. Uh, really does solidify uh, yes. how he's really come to integrate what a horrible yes. and traumatic event that would have been, right? Mm-hmm. And, and still mm-hmm. affects him, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, Wow. Thanks yeah. for sharing those. I, yeah. I gotta say, those no, are my, <laughs> those are my favorite. That's my favorite question because it accesses that, that mm-hmm. experiential learning that you've experienced. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, those stories, I think they mark us, change us, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Well, the last question is kind of transitions from that idea of who has changed your practice. How, how have some of these patients touched your life to maybe you know, who or what in the other realms of life have kind of affected the way that you provide spiritual care within your context at Alberta Hospital. So that yeah. could be a certain writer, it could be your own training or, or background, but I, I always love to hear how yeah. you've become the person you are. Uh, I have one quote that I use in my life and then I, I almost all the time I say it and I, it's a reminder for myself and I say, I am where I am because of how others have invested in my life. Mm. And so therefore I say that I have a moral ethical obligation to invest in others. Mm. So I've, I've seen that mentors, teachers, family members, even my own patients that I've been around have been a huge influence, but, and above all, I must say that uh, my mortality my faith and my God has helped me 
so much mm. to uh, to even um, allow myself to experience the the goodness from the mentors and the teachers and the family and all that to soak that in itself i think my faith had a part to play in it i don't want to say just my faith i just want to say faith has brought me to a place that has taught me so many things because there was a point in my life i was not a believer hmm. so uh, i'm not a believer in anything right but i've seen how the god of the bible has changed my life Hmm. Yeah. And that has been a lasting change. Hmm. And uh, so for the last, and, and, and the reality of my life is seeing the number of times that I have been, I could have been dead. So the mortality, my own mortality, my own limitation of how I could have been taken out just like that so easily. And yet I'm here for a reason. Hmm. And yeah. that, and and that, for me to finish well and do what I'm doing to the, to the best I can, that that's a huge piece. Um, uh, you know, three years ago I could have died because of some allergies that I had. I was very close to death, yeah. but that that opened my eyes to one thing: God, if you're going to give me life, every day I will live from today as my last day of my life. Hmm. So I, I've never looked back from that. And I'm, and you know, and, and I'm seeing so many, I, I'm in my 60s now, and I'm seeing so many people in my age group, cancer, uh, heart attacks, COVID, who have just died. These are people that I know of. Right. These are people I'm, 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 who are connected to me. And when I'm seeing that, and if God has kept me alive, there's definitely a reason why I'm alive, and I'm not going to go down with my head down. <laughs> mm, yeah. I, lo- I really appreciate that because I think that's one thing that I think any spiritual care student, but also anybody in life, but I think the more you become aware of our mortality, um, maybe that's not something we often think about. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, you know, there's no way I know our audience can't, won't be able to see you, but you do not look 60 to me at all. I was like, <laughs> um, in your sixties, but um, me being in my thirties, you know, my generation would probably not even think one not very often of their mortality, but I do think it's our mortality that if we can realize that we don't know what tomorrow will bring, it yeah. does give us a sense of wanting to lean into what is today and yeah. making the most of, of our opportunities. Yeah. And, and yeah. like you said, to invest into others is a more lasting value than, you know, pursuing the things that we think yeah. may be valuable, right? So, yeah. yeah. And, and I do that in every place in my life. I do that in hospital. I do that in the community. I do that in every circle that I'm connected to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that gives me the drive and the reason. Mm-hmm. Keeps yeah. you, keeps, keeps you, me going. it keeps you going into that unit with the person yeah. who's going to swear at you. Yes. You realize that there's more. There's, yeah. there's so much more to that person than just what we're seeing, that one shell. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you uh, so, so much. You, yeah, you know, very I've just you. so appreciated the, the input and the, the, yeah. the heart that you have. And, and I know for many of the people who will be listening to this, um, it, yeah. it's helpful to understand the world of mental health and how broad and how so often it does get stigmatized down to one simple thing. But yes. there's so much more going on in the yeah. background. And I appreciate you bringing yeah. that to light. Not a problem. Thanks for joining us for this episode of On Call. I hope you'll join me next time as we explore parts of the playfulness of spiritual care 
when I interviewed Deb Kirkpatrick, spiritual health practitioner at Misericordia Hospital, Edmonton, about her passion for the expressive arts in spiritual care. See you next time.